Remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I'll just remind you, if you uh, came in a little late or missed it earlier, uh, this morning we have with us uh, Reverend Ryan McVicker. Uh, Ryan is uh, the planter of New City, which is in Ferndale over in the Detroit area. He left that work earlier this summer and is going to begin planting in Ann Arbor. Uh, we just had our Presbytery meeting this past weekend. It was actually in Detroit and it was good to be together. I, I learned a fact this weekend um, that the Great Lakes Presbytery is the fastest growing presbytery in the country uh, among PCA churches. So God is really doing some really amazing things in our midst. I think you've seen that here in, on the west side of the state as we've planted three churches just in the last couple of years in the greater Grand Rapids area. Uh, and then what God is doing on the east side of the state as well. We certainly want to celebrate that because of what we're going to read this morning. Uh, we have just such a, a great salvation. And here as we come to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm grateful for Ryan jumping in on our series, uh, we, we have just one of the greatest statements of uh, Christian doctrine and our hope that we have in all of the scriptures. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Thus far in the reading of God's word this morning, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Father, as we come together under this word, we pray that you would minister it to us. Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand hands and feet to do your bidding as we go from this place. Father, we do thank you for Ryan, for the work that he, uh, that you are doing through him uh, in uh, Detroit, in Ann Arbor, uh, and we anticipate the work that you will do through him this morning here in Grand Rapids. Give him all that he stands in need of. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, thank you, Andrew, and it is an honor to be here with you this morning, uh, Christ Church. It's an honor to serve with you this morning. You have served me in ways you probably have no idea, but when we started New City in 2012, both Drew Yelgerheis and Walter served on the leadership board or the acting session, if you will, and now Andrew and Drew again. Uh, is serving with us and just provides such a great deal of wisdom and encouragement and support. And so I have been richly blessed through your ministry, and it's so good to finally be with the people that I have heard so much about and to share God's Word with you this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> as Andrew mentioned, I am presently uh, the pastor of a church with no name and really no people and no building. So I haven't preached in quite, I'm trying, trying to remember how to do this, actually. 
um, this, is, this is strange. We, we only have two ministries right now in our church, marriage counseling and a youth ministry, because the only people in the church is my wife and my kids. And so it's, it's, it's and the youth ministry is not going so great. And the marriage counseling's <laughs> iffy. Um, but I, I consider myself a Michigander now after, after being in Michigan, actually since 2007. Uh, I grew up in Illinois. Uh, the house I grew up in was in the middle of the Shawnee National Forest on hundreds of acres. Uh, we actually had um, a full-court basketball court outside of our house. We uh, had a horse farm, a private lake that was lined with bluffs and beautiful trees. And all of this was not because I grew up in a billionaire family, uh, but I actually grew up uh, with a dad who was a prison warden, and we lived on the prison grounds. And so the house I lived in was the warden's house, and probably the thing I remember most about the house was the lake that we enjoyed. I had access to swim, uh, to swim in the lake and to, to get out there and to fish in the lake that we didn't swim too often because the water moccasins were, were a, bit, a bit thick. But um, as we would go out on this little boat that the prison provided, and it was a, a large lake, I would take my friends, but the prisoners in their uniforms would line the bluffs of this lake 40, 50 60 perhaps more prisoners at a time would line up across the bluffs. And, and I got to know some of these prisoners uh, over time. Uh, they kept up our plumbing and our electric in our house. And, and my dad would sometimes take me in the prison when they were playing basketball games. And I would enjoy some basketball games uh, with them. And um, <clears throat> uh, it, it, it always struck me. Uh, though I got to know them and would interact with them and, and would play basketball with them, um, I would always leave. I would always leave, and I was free. And they had to stay. And when I was fishing, uh, I couldn't help but to look across the lake and, and to think about how, how terrible that life was to be bound in a place where you were not free to leave. And I, I, I pitied them in, in, in many ways, and that, that I had the freedom, the, the great house, to come and go as I pleased, and, and they had to stay. They had to stay. And, I, and I've thought back on, on that, because at the time, I wasn't a Christian. I became a Christian years later in, in college. And I've since wondered if any of those prisoners who were sitting on the bluffs knew the Lord. I'm sure there were. There was a great Christian ministry uh, that I've heard about since, and I'm sure there were some of those men who were converted to Christ while in prison. And so there I was thinking about how miserable their lives were, and yet maybe there was a prisoner over there, maybe even one who was sentenced to life in prison, looking over at me, thinking about the irony of it all, how he himself is locked up, but truly free, and Sentenced by the state, but truly forgiven by the one who matters. Not favored by the state, but favored by God. And perhaps he looked over at me, thinking of the irony, how he is locked up but free, and how I could come and go with all of my friends like a free man, but he knew I was the one in bondage unless I had Jesus Christ. Maybe even one of those prisoners prayed for me, and the Lord used his prayers to 
bring me to faith in Christ. This came to my mind as I, as I thought about the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians. You know, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He was under guard, and as he wrote this, there he was on the bluffs, if you will, on the bluffs, riding to the people across the lake in Ephesus, riding to the people across the lake in Ephesus about how to live life like a free person. That's what Paul's writing about, in prison to these people about how to live life like a free person. The citizens of Ephesus thought they were free. They thought they were free, just like I used to think I was free. They're looking at the prisoners, though I wasn't a Christian and I wasn't really free. See, Ephesus was a city brimming with confidence, with resources, with, with gods. At the time, I think it was the third largest city in the known world, and uh, this, this was... Um, a place that had a lot of life. Uh, they brimmed with confidence. Um, they enjoyed their Roman power and their freedom. And yet as a result of Paul's prayers for them and, and his proclamation of the gospel while he was with them, there was a small band of people there who realized that apart from Christ, they were not rich, nor were they free. And those people, that small group of people who heard this gospel and realized that apart from Christ they weren't free, they repented and they believed the good news. That is, they received God's word and they, they had a new mind about God and about themselves and about Christ and, and they rested by faith in Christ with dependent trust. And this small band of people called the church, called the church, now found themselves suffering for their faith. And they looked small now that they were following Christ. They looked weak, like they were throwing their lives away, all because, as I'm sure many people said, all because of that fake news. We hear a lot about fake news these days. All because of that fake news from this guy who's in prison named Paul. Now, this group in Ephesus were like a sorry, broken-down people because they listened to the news of a sorry, broken-down man who is now a prisoner. And that prisoner's name was Paul, and, and, and his letter that we call Ephesians is like a voice yelling across the lake to them, telling them to hold on to the truth that he proclaimed to them, telling them to not buy into the small-mindedness that was all around them about how to, how to, the world's advice about how to be really free and how to really live life to the full. Instead, Paul is telling them that as Christians, they have in the gospel, what everyone else is searching for. Don't let go of it. Don't lose it. Hold on to this, no matter what they say, no matter what they do. That's what the book of Ephesians is to these people across the lake, so to speak. And here we find ourselves at the beginning of this letter, a letter that, that Paul opens with a, a, a run-on sentence, as perhaps you've already heard in, in Andrew's introduction. Uh, 202 words, to be exact, of nonstop excitement is what we have here in chapter 1 of Ephesians, of, of, of really an amazement about the gospel. And, and there's dreamy language here about how big of a deal it is to be part of the Christian church. That's, Paul's writing to these people to help them to realize how big of a deal it is that we get to be part of the church. And it's such a big deal because, as you saw last week, God has set us apart as his special possession he has secured every blessing for us. He has sought us, even though we never sought him. And he gave us a new standing that is called sonship with all the royal privileges 
of a child of God. And we'll see this morning that he goes on to give reasons why it's such a big deal to be a Christian and part of the church. He goes on to say that it's a big deal because those who are in Christ have been released, released from our greatest trouble. And because the one who's given us release has lavished us with riches and because he's given us everything we need to really live. We've been released, we've been lavished with riches, and we can really live. That's what we see here this morning in this passage of Scripture. Paul says in verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. Now, redemption is a word, it's a really important word about releasing someone. Uh, it's, it's a word about deliverance, uh, but it's not simply referring to some kind of generic deliverance. Uh, the language of redemption is, is language of a purchase and, and specifically is talking about a ransom payment to secure the release and the freedom of a slave. That's what's packed into that word, redemption. Now, oftentimes in their culture, um, a person would voluntarily offer him or herself as a slave to pay off their debt. This carried with it a great deal of of shame and burdens in life. And it really was an amazing act of love when, when a person who loved them so much and discovered that their friend or loved one was indebted as a slave, that a person would suffer, would suffer really, and do whatever they could to do to secure the means necessary to pay for their loved one's release. Typically, they would go to the redemption center you might say, uh, usually at one of the local temples of a local god to pay the price of the redemption for that slave, and then that person would be set free. Now, before you say, well, that's, that's really amazing that someone would do that. Obviously, there are degrees to how amazing this is. If it's just a little bit of shame suffered and $100, then you might say, well, well thank you when someone comes to pay off your $100 debt and sets you free. Thank you very much. But what if you were suffering great shame and in debt for $100,000 and, and the person who loves you emptied their retirement account and liquidated everything for your release? Well, that's probably bigger than a, well, thank you, right? Uh, that, uh, uh, that, that is really... Uh, beyond words, how would you respond to someone who would do that? But, but what if you were experiencing immeasurable shame and regret, and, and you're in the grip of someone whose intent was to destroy your life and your future, and you are legally bound to them, and the debt is so deep, there's no earthly bank account that, that could pay the ransom for your release. You see, the Bible from cover to cover says, that's us. That's the situation we're in. It's not that we just owe a hundred bucks. We are indebted immeasurably, with immeasurable shame, if left to ourselves, a payment that could never be paid, and no one in this world could pay it. And enslaved to sin and to death, there's no way out. We Americans don't like to admit that that is our natural standing our natural situation in this life. We don't like to admit that because we hate having to admit 
that we have reason to be ashamed. And, and we hate the idea of someone owning us who has the power to ruin us. But that is true of us left to ourselves. So when we read the words here, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption, we need to recognize the magnitude of this redemption that's being spoken of. We're not talking here about a hundred bucks. We're talking about redemption at the cost of the blood of the eternal Son of God. And Jesus was well aware, by the way, that this is the purpose for which he came. Do you remember his words in Mark chapter 10 when he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom payment for many. See, when Jesus spoke of giving his life, when he spoke of the cross, when the Bible speaks of his death, that's all synonymous with the phrase we have here, through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood. When it talks about his blood, it's not referring, it's not referring here to his blood as, as a liquid substance running through his veins. Um, it's as, as though there was something magical about, about the liquid in, in Jesus' veins. It's, it's referring to a life that was violently taken as a sacrifice in the place of another. When Paul refers to the blood of Christ, violent death sacrificial in the place of someone else. Um, the blood of Christ is shorthand for the violent, sacrificial, shame-filled death of God's beloved Son. That was the price for your redemption. That's why Paul here is, is so excited when he writes about these things, reminding those in Ephesus, you we're legally bound to spend the rest of eternity paying for the shame and the guilt of your trespasses. But all of that changed. All of that changed in Christ through His blood. Well, what, what did the blood of Christ do for you? How, how were we legally redeemed through the blood of Christ? Well, Paul goes on to tell us. Verse 7 continues. This all happened through the remission of sins, the remission of, of our trespasses is the language he uses. All of us have trespassed God's holy law. All of us have trespassed God's holy law. God has commanded us to love Him, and He has parsed this out for us all through the Bible about what it means to love Him and to worship Him and to live holy lives unto Him from our hearts into our minds and our, into our lives, and He's called us to love each other. And He parses this out in the Bible about what it means to humble ourselves before others and to offer forgiveness and to love and to serve, and on and on. And we have not loved God and we have not loved people as He has called us to. Our deep sense of shame is rooted in, in our realization, and, and we hate to admit it, but we know it's there. The realization that, that we have personally rebelled against and we have displeased our Creator, God. And some people may deal with this by running into some kind of secular humanism just to sort of get rid of that sense of, of, of shame that we've ever sinned against or offended our God, and, and, and others may run headlong in to the most religious life imaginable in order to somehow tamper down the, that sense of, of, of shame. But those things don't work. 
Paul here is very clear that the only thing that releases you from the shame and the guilt of your sin, really, the only thing, is the blood of Christ. If you've trusted in the blood of Christ shed for you, all the shame and the guilt piled up against you for all of your trespasses is canceled. Your charges are nowhere to be found. He buries them in the ocean. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. The reason for your shame and your guilt is nowhere to be found. And not only that, he doesn't just bring your account from negative gazillion to zero, but he lavishes your account with riches. That's why the Apostle Paul says he does this in accordance with the riches of his grace. It's a really important line there. Notice he doesn't say out of the riches of his grace. He says, in accordance with the riches of his grace, not out of. It's not as though there was a bowl of riches that God just sort of reached in and and grabbed a little pinch out of his riches and and sprinkled just enough on you. I was at a dinner recently, and I was looking for the salt shaker, and and someone passed a bowl that was just filled with salt, and you're supposed to reach in. And and so I reached in and grabbed the salt and just sprinkled it on my, my plate. Out of that bowl of salt, I took a little bit and sprinkled it. And that's not the picture here, that God had these riches in his son, Jesus Christ. And he, out of that, took some and gave them to you. know, in accordance with his riches is what he is saying here. See, if, if, if Andrew here, sitting in front of me, were to give to me out of his riches, he would give me a portion of his riches. But that's not what it says here. It says in accordance. If, if Andrew were to, to give me out of his riches, you know, I don't know. Are you a generous guy? 500 bucks out of, out of your riches? You might give me. You see, he's not saying here that he reached in and, and, and gave a generous amount. He gave everything in his son. Everything in accordance with the riches of his grace. That is, he lavished you with as much as he had because all that he he had, he gave you in his son. That means he put riches into your personal account. That is the riches of Christ's worthiness, the riches of Christ's righteousness, the riches of his favor and all of his promises. All of those he lavished upon you and secured you in them because all of these were in his son and secure in his son and you now have been redeemed in his son it's really an amazing line and so this means that he put riches in your personal account the riches of Christ's worthiness and righteousness all the love and favor that God had for the son he has for you if you are redeemed in Christ and this has deep meaning because it says because it says if you presently walk in self-hatred or if you walk in shame, or if you are living wrapped up in fear and, and in anxiety, it's not true. You're living a lie. If you are in Christ, those things are not true of you. You are living like you are poor spiritually, and you are rich And Paul's reminding us of these things. And he did this, Paul says, even though he knew and knows everything about 
you are past, present, and future. That's the point he's making when he says, he lavished you with his riches with all wisdom and understanding. That's not a throwaway line. What he's saying there is, God did this for you, even though he knows all of your deepest darkness. He knows all the ways that you have failed him, all the ways that you fail him, all of the ways you will fail him, all the ways that you fail others, and all the ways that this will take place in the future. And he still loves you and lavishes you with his riches. Some of you, again, are living life with anxiety and fear and just... And underneath that is, 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 is a guilty, shame-filled conscience because you've never claimed what God has said that he secured for you through the blood of his son. You keep listening to the voices of shame and condemnation, perhaps from around you, or maybe it's your own voice, that recurring voice inside of you. And here the apostle is saying, listen instead to God's word, his promise, his voice. He says, I've redeemed you. You have been released. You are free. You are rich. I'm convinced that Paul did something here to to drive home the point of how big of a deal this is. See, Paul was, in his previous life, the Jew of all Jews. He was a Pharisee. So like all good Jews of his day, if, if he wanted to stir up excitement and joy, what did you do? You told a story. And you told the story, actually, most often, uh, the story uh, of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. That's what they did. They retold the story of God's redemption from Egypt. See, Jews always associated redemption with Egypt. That's the word that's actually used in Exodus. I redeemed you from Pharaoh, he says. And, and they retold the Passover and, and of, of God's leading them to the promised land. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Only what Paul's pointing to is a redemption that is bigger than Exodus. And it's for you. Um, <clears throat> uh, this redemption is bigger. The, the blood that Paul is speaking of here is better than the blood of the Passover lamb. And the land that we're headed toward is more beautiful than the land they knew of. It isn't a lamb that's continually offered. That, uh, you see, the, the, the lamb of the Passover was, was a shadow of the true lamb, Jesus Christ, to come. And, and what he's talking about here is, it isn't a little spot in the Middle East uh, called the Promised Land. That was sufficient for a short time in history, but it was only setting the stage for something bigger. See, the land we're heading for is the land of heaven and earth coming together to form an entirely new paradise. You see, Paul's saying the fact that we can know all of this, the fact that we can know these things, um, that, that that's what all of Old Testament history was leading up to and, and, and what all of history right now is leading us into, the fact that we can know this is a ridiculously generous gift of God to reveal these things to us. And that's what he's doing in verses 9 and 10 of our passage. Notice he says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. Um, See, for us, mystery refers to something that's unknown. 
but that's not how it was used in the Bible. In, in their day, it referred to something that had previously been hidden, but, but now it has been revealed. Now it's been made known. Well, what is it that's been made known? What's the mystery Paul is trying to get us to wrap our arms around that has been made known to us? Well, what's been made known is God's eternal will for you. The plan that God has always had in mind for what He was going to accomplish through His Son. That's what's been revealed. The plan that that He's had before the creation of the world. The the plan that He's been working all through history. A history that in every generation, of course, feels feels like an endless cycle of trouble and misery. That's how the philosophers write all through the ages, right? Um, But now He's made it known to his redeemed, that is to us, that it's not an endless cycle of frustration and misery. Instead, he's driving history to a certain point. He's, he's driving history to the fullness of time. That is, when the time is ripe, he says. When the time is ripe, and he's going to show off the wisdom of his plan and, and, and his power to carry out his plan. That is, God in the right moment in history was going to show off how great He was, how how great His power and His love are for His people. And that's what He's done in His Son. He is showing Himself off in His Son. And now He's made it known to His redeemed that this is indeed what He has done in the gospel. Have you ever been in a situation that, that looked really bleak, and, and, and everyone was looking at you to solve the problem. You know, maybe something as small as a backyard football game growing up. I remember times in the backyard, and, and, and we're running out of time. We have to run in for dinner, and, and the game is tied. And, and you know, I might dr- lift up my hand and, and draw a play on my hand, and, we're, and, and, and everyone's hoping this works, and, and it does. And touchdown, and, 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 and we win the game. Um, you know, you may, you may have found yourself in, in some situation like that. Um, and my point here is to say Ephesians 1.9 is essentially saying touchdown. He's, he's showing what his play was all along. He's always planned to show off his best stuff when his son stepped into the game. That's what Paul's saying here particularly when his son was lifted up on the cross and he lifted up his hands not to draw up a play, but his blood-drawn hands pierced for the price of your ransom payment. And then to make your payment good, he was lifted up from the dead to reign from his throne. This is the payment that unconditionally secures your place to take part in God's uniting all things in heaven and in earth. And this he will do under the visible and tangible reign of King Jesus. This this unification in Christ that he speaks of, or better yet, uh, uh, under Christ, is the masterpiece of Christ's work. I mean, all things that are presently at war in our world and in our lives, all things that are beating against each other or broken apart, will be brought together. This is part of the mystery that he's revealing to us that we can know right now. They will be summed up. There's a really unique and rare word that Paul uses here. In the, in the Greek, it's, it's anakephalio. Anakephalio is the word. And that's a word that means all things many, with many different parts will be brought together. 
You know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like Paul is showing us here the cover of a picture box. The cover of a picture box is really helpful when you're putting together a piece, uh, a puzzle, because when all the pieces are laying scattered on the floor, you, you wonder, how can that ever be brought together? I mean, it's a mess. How can those pieces ever fit? And then you look at the cover box, and it reminds you, it reminds you of, of what it could be. And Paul here is, is helping us to realize that this world, our lives right now, look like those puzzle pieces scattered all over the floor. How can this ever be brought together? And he's showing us here in Ephesians 1, look at the cover of the box. Look at the beauty that God has done in Christ. All things will be summed up like puzzle pieces that you, can, you can't ever imagine coming together to make something beautiful, but they do. Now, here's the thing. The focus of the book of Ephesians is not just saying that that world is coming. The point of Ephesians is to get us to realize there is one place on earth right now where Jesus is explicitly the head, the Lord, where he brings all things together. And that place is the church. Therefore, Christ's future visible reign should find expression in the church, is what Paul's saying. The church should be like the cover of a puzzle box. The box shows you what it will look like when the pieces are brought together. When we speak of the beautiful reign of our Lord and the promises He has made, and people say, well, what could that even look like when people are so different from one another, so much hatred, so much war? We, sh- we should be able to say, well, look at the church. And you should get a sense of what that will look like when the Lord returns and completes this. And remember, Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison. Um, But there was real happiness, wasn't there, and real peace and forgiveness and love that he experienced. That's why there's such a focus here on practical things like Jews and Gentiles realizing they're part of the same family. That's a big emphasis for Paul in Ephesians. And to see them come together because that's simply a visible way of seeing what God is doing with all of creation. God is bringing every hostility-filled relationship together. That's why those who are in Christ, that is the church, that's us, Christ Church, we're the ones with the motivation to intentionally tear down the dividing walls in our marriages or with our managing partners or, or with the many-faceted political lines that are drawn all around us, the different colors and ethnicities and preferences of people who are in our lives, we're the ones who intentionally tear these lines down because we're the ones who know that every last hostile molecule in the Milky Way will come together under the reign of Jesus Christ. So we come together. Not just in attendance here on Sundays, but we're brought together deep. I pray that will be true for you, for you spouses, for for you and your friends, for parents and children, for conservatives and progressives or whatever names you go by, for, for anyone who's just visiting this morning and, and you feel so unlovable or uncomfortable because you're, you're different somehow, I pray that you'll find deep love here in the church. I, I pray that you'll give real love because this is what we have in Christ. He has brought all things together. So the point here. The point here in closing is to get you to imagine that kind of world 
Imagine you're standing before God that, that He is the God who in Christ dances over you with affection because you are forgiven, holy, and loved. And what you are standing will be then, imagine yourself in the future before His throne, what you're standing will be then is your standing now. And nothing can change that. So go ahead and put that mindset into practice now. Live now as though, as, as, as though that's how God really feels about you, because He does. He really loves you. He paid the price to set you free. He really did. And so you can have that mindset now. Or you, you can say, you know, I live life blaming people a lot. Or I don't take personal responsibility. Or I'm a gossip. Or I might be a little narcissistic. Well, guess what? When all things in heaven and earth come together in Christ, you won't even think of such a thing. You wouldn't dare live with any selfishness or pride. It will be impossible because you'll be whole and perfected. You'll be overwhelmed with Jesus' beauty and presence and, and love. But you have that now in Christ. He has lavished you with these riches. You should try it, church. You say, it'll be so good then when I'm not so insecure. The Bible says, try it now. You have that security in Christ now. Um, it'll be so good when I'm, I'm no longer addicted to substances. Well, well, try it now. You have been set free. It'll be so good when I'm not so racially charged. Or, or The list goes on and on. Well, try it now because in Christ, that's who you are. You are a new creation set free at the cost of His blood. We're people learning to become now in the present what we will be in the future. We have been redeemed. That is who we are. We are free. He has lavished His riches upon us. And so, Christ Church, let's really live according to what is true of what we have in Christ. Amen.